0: Romans chapter 12. we'll turn our attention again this morning, verses three through eight. We started this last week got uh, through most of verse three. So we'll pick up with that this morning. next next week, of course, we'll turn our attention to uh, the, the the Easter story. We'll be talking about the crucifixion, resurrection. We'll take a break from Romans. Uh, and would encourage you, if you haven't already done so, invite somebody next Sunday, uh, in particular those who don't go to, go to church already, somebody, somewhere else, all right, uh, that uh, you would invite uh, folks to be a part uh, of our Easter celebration next Sunday morning, 1030. Uh, it'll be, uh, be a good service together. Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 3. For I say through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, Not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we, being many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Having then gifts, differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them, if prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith, or ministry, let us use it in our ministering, he who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. An important part of life whether we always appreciate it or not, an important part of life is the giving and getting of gifts. Just kind of part of the fabric of of the way we do things. In fact, my guess is most folks in this room started receiving gifts before you were even born, right? Right? And then even for those subsequent weeks and months after, you got all kinds of gifts you had no idea about. But from those earliest days of life, there is the giving of gifts. It's just a part of what we do. It, it goes beyond the, the normal expectation, say at a Christmas season, birthdays anniversaries, those would be moments where there may be the giving and the getting of gifts, but there are other social situations. Maybe you are invited to somebody's home and you bring a gift with you. Maybe somebody does something for you and so you reciprocate with a gift. Giving and the getting of gifts, just a part of life. Now, there are some folks who I think are really gifted at giving really good gifts, just to let you know, I'm really good at getting them. I excel at getting gifts. I consider it really a talent. Uh, I don't like to talk about it, but I'm really good. If you give me a gift, I'll, uh, I'll take it. So I'm really good at that part of it. But a lot of folks out there are really good at the, at the giving them that you're very creative, you're thoughtful. you, you, give, you give things that, that people either wanted and/ or use. And we, we all have been on the receiving end of gifts that were home runs, right? I mean, maybe gifts that to this day we still have, we still use, we still appreciate. Then there are other gifts, right? Maybe not as appreciated. I mean, maybe it is one of those where we would say something like, what? It's the thought that counts, right? And all of you, you have that box... You have that spot in your closet. You have that place up in the attic where all of those gifts have gone. Some of you have even relabeled them the re gifting box, right? In other words, that's where you go to when you realize, okay, somebody needs something. Maybe they would want this thing. The giving and the getting of gifts is just an important part of life. I thought you might be interested if you need any ideas on the giving of gifts. Here are some options. Uh, if you go to Amazon, you can find these. You can get glow-in-the-dark toilet paper. All right, that's one option. And the power goes out when there's hurricanes. I don't know. All right, so there's glow-in-the-dark. There's pickled-flavored gumballs. All right, so that's an option. I saw one that was a bag of nothing but the marshmallows that come out of Lucky Charms. Right? Some of you are like, oh, yeah, give me that. Give me half and half. bake a big bowl and breakfast of champions. I saw one that was caffeinated soap. Yeah, you can work that one out. I mean, I don't really know what you do with it. I mean, I don't know if it absorbs through the skin or if, I don't know, if you suck on it. I'm not really sure what you're supposed to do with it. And then here's another one, soap related, a soap dispenser in the shape of a nose. You all work that out on your own. All right. There's some options for you. I'm serious. If I get every single one of those, you people, you will have no idea what you will receive from me. Because that's what some of you are thinking. Alright, let's write all these down. Okay, you get him the pickle gumballs, you get him the nose dispenser. I know that's exactly what you people are thinking because I understand you. Giving and getting of gifts. It's just kind of a part of life. This is interesting in in light of the fact the New Testament makes much of gifts. It's an important part of of the Christian experience. It, It is heart and soul to the way in which the church should operate. I mean, a significant feature of the work of the gospel, of the fact that God in His grace has saved us, an important feature of that work of the gospel, of the presence of the Holy Spirit in my life, is that God has given gifts. And I'm not talking about talent, and I'm not talking about skill, though to be sure we might identify those as something given by God. I am talking about those qualities that are gifted to us by the Spirit as a direct result of God's saving work. The New Testament makes much of these gifts. In fact, the New Testament says it is essential for the healthy functioning of the church. For everybody, not just people who may do stuff in front of everybody else in the church, but it is essential for everybody in the church to know to understand, to use their gifts, in particular in the context of the local church. So this morning, as we turn our attention again to Romans chapter 12, verses 3 through 8, you know, after Paul has given us that, that profound foundational principle in verses 1 and 2, where he's described the Christian life as a living sacrifice. I am to yield myself as holy devoted to the Lord, the very next then set of teachings encourages me to then think rightly about myself and my relationship to the church, and in particular, the manner in which God has equipped me to serve alongside everyone else in the church. So last week, we we kicked this off. We started looking at verses 3 through 8. And again, Paul's Paul's instruction here uh, is is a natural, I think, connection to what he has just said. He's told us to renew our mind, to think carefully, let that lead to transformation. And so then the very next thing he says there in verse 3, For I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly. And with these words, I think Paul really then establishes for us the next important teaching on what it means to live a fully devoted life. It means thinking rightly about myself and my place in the church. Thinking rightly about myself and my place in the church. That I find myself living this fully devoted life, when I think really carefully about who, who I am, what God has done to me and for me and in me and wants to do through me, and then what that means in relation to everybody else who is a part of the church. Now, in order to understand myself this way, in order to, to really get the right mindset, I think Paul encourages me to view my life through three lenses. Three lenses. And if I get these three lenses right, I think I'm well on the way to understanding who I am and my role in the church. Number one, this is from last week, we view ourselves through the lens of God's grace. That's how Paul begins there in verse 3. He says, I say to every one of you through the grace given to me. It's an interesting way to refer to himself. He's referring to his apostleship when he does this. so, So he says, so don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, but to think soberly. So we spend all of our time thinking about what that means, to think more highly than you ought, is to think super thoughts about yourself, to overthink yourself. Instead, we need to, we need to think grounded thoughts, sober thoughts, appropriate thoughts about ourselves. Now, we didn't really then get into it, but the next phrase, and though we, we did talk some about how, how that influences us when we, when we came to the Lord's table last Sunday, we took of the elements... And I I think it was a profound reminder to us, I mean, how how else do you take that which points to the body and the blood of Christ? How how do you remember body that was broken and blood that was shed? How do you think about those things without thinking properly about yourself, without thinking soberly? In other words, we were given a real life then illustration of God's grace. But I think the next phrase in verse 3 also speaks to that same kind of grace. So notice how he, he tells the folks in Rome, so, you know, don't, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. Think carefully. And what is the manner? What is the comparison? As God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. That whole phrase is really interesting. I mean, first, that he's, that he's making this uh, as, a, as a connecting point. The, the reason why I need to think of myself soberly, not more highly than I ought, is because when I think of myself, I need to view myself through what God has dealt. And the word dealt meaning just what you think, what God has doled out, what God has handed on to me, what God has given. Now, when he says well, the way God has dealt then to us a measure of faith, Word measure meaning like a, like a standard, meaning an amount, right? We hear the word measurement, and that's what we think. So here's one way in which I think this phrase is intended. I can't read this and not think back to what is the fundamental work of salvation itself. And when I I hear Paul say, don't think of yourself more highly, think soberly, because God has dealt you a measure of faith, I read that phrase and I go right back then to the saving work and recognize according to a passage like Ephesians chapter 2, my very salvation, the means by which I was made right with God, the fact that I'm no longer an enemy of God, but a son of God, the fact that I've now been reconciled, the blood of Christ has covered me, my sins have been forgiven, that, that all of that was made possible because God in His good grace gave me faith to believe the gospel. He dealt to me, He divvied out, he handed out, he provided as nothing more than a gift of his grace, the ability to believe the gospel in the first place. Listen, church, I know we've been over this. This to me is a fundamental way that we understand the saving work of God. That if you and I get into the mindset that the work of salvation is God doing His part and me doing my part, that, that God's over here and you know He's loving and He's sending Jesus to die and there's the resurrection, all that good stuff. But over here on my part, I, I need to kind of put my own effort into it and I I need to believe some things and I have my work that I have to do and that salvation is a coming together of God's work and my work now if people believe that so be it, I'm just here to tell you that's not how the Bible describes the gospel instead it describes it this way and I've put it this way though it's not original with me there is God's part and there is my part pastor that's contradictory Well, welcome to preaching with Scott Gleason, right? Okay, so, yeah, God does have his part, I do have mine. God does the saving and I do the sinning. That's the part. My part in the role of salvation was absolutely nothing. Why why do I not have a role in the saving work of God? Because over here, I'm dead in my trespasses and sin. How do dead people do anything? They've got to be brought back to life. This is the gospel. God in His grace first giving me life. God giving me faith as a sovereign work of His grace. God doling out, dealing out, giving to me faith that I might believe. I'm reminded already here at the very beginning. Paul is telling us, even though the first 11 chapters of of Romans has made all that I just said very clear, some might even say it was an excruciating detail over the last two years, all right, that we have walked through, 1 through 11. Yet Paul, here he is, bringing it back up again. <laughs> the means by which I think of myself appropriately is thinking of myself in regard to the faith that has been dealt to me, a measure of faith. But I think Paul's intent, though, goes beyond that. Given the fact that the rest of this text, as we just read, will talk about grace that has been given... And he will use it in a way that goes beyond just the saving work of God to talk about how God has also given gifts to the church. God has also dealt, he's, he's divvied up among his people, abilities. Abilities. Abilities that are to be used in the context of the church. I think then when Paul says, you think of yourself, not only through this lens of grace and everything that you have is a gift of grace, and that even the faith that you have to believe is a a measure of faith given to you, but recognize that God then in His grace has also dealt to you a measure of faith, meaning that faith then goes beyond just the saving work to be a serving work. There's an expectation that then I would now cooperate with that sanctifying work of the Spirit in my life, that work of the Spirit making me like Christ, that that includes the fact that I have been given gifts according to God's sovereign design. I've been given, dealt a measure of faith. I think when he uses measure of faith here, it is similar then to the language that he's going to use a little bit later there in verse 6, having then Gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us. In other words, God has not only given me faith to believe, but also this faith that is needed to exercise spiritual gifts. So God has dealt this. And so I think think all of this, again, just draws our attention to a fundamental way in which we should view ourselves. We view ourselves in relation to God's grace. God's grace is not just the lens through which I view myself to save me. It is the lens through which I view myself all along the journey in my Christian walk. Everything about me should be viewed through this. Let me say, church, I don't know that we always do this really well. Here's, here's where I think we perhaps could miss it. The longer that we are saved, the easier it is to forget how wicked we would be without the gospel. That's really, I think, where the danger comes in. We think of ourselves as pretty good folk, right? Take care of our family, we come to church. Whether we like it or not, we'll compliment the pastor on his bow tie. All right, in other words, we'll do all those things that make us nice people, and so we're pretty good folks, right? Dead in our trespasses and sin. Yes, that was true of me some time ago. I think, though, the further away we get from understanding just how radical is the gospel to save me, mm, I think that is when we then steer into this thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought. Instead, I I need to always view myself then through the lens of this grace of God. Now let's go on to number two. And that is I think we are to then view ourselves through the lens of being God's people. The lens of God's people. Notice what he specifically then follows this with. I think of myself not more highly than I ought, but soberly, and one of the ways I do that is I recognize a measure of faith has been given to me, but I also recognize... I have been inserted into a group of people that I'm not in charge of making, that I'm not the head of, that God as a result of nothing but His own design and grace has made me a part of. Notice what he says in verse 4. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function... So we, being many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Now, this is then going to launch Paul into a little bit of teaching in verses 6 through 8, then, on the nature of spiritual gifts. But he does something here that he also does in 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 14. In fact, if you wanted a little more background, if you wanted to read this with a that has a, a little more detail to it, I would commend to you those three chapters. Chapter 12, in particular, of 1 Corinthians, where Paul uses the exact same image. So, after telling me I need to view myself appropriately because of God's grace, he then also expands that vision. He says, so here's part of what God's work has done. God's work has grafted you into what he describes as a body. In fact, this is, this is so familiar, this is such a part of the vernacular of church life that we, we regularly, without speaking or explaining the metaphor, describe ourselves as a part of the body. We are members of the body of Christ. It, it is probably one of the premier metaphors in the New Testament to describe the church. Now, I do want to stress something before we kind of flesh out some of this. I do want to stress what he says there in verse 5. We being many are one body in Christ. So before we go any further, let's make sure we understand what we mean. Paul is going to use the human body as a metaphor to describe the nature of our relationship to one another. Though he doesn't go into great detail in this regard... Paul's words, using that one phrase, we are many members in Christ, points us to what is the most important part of the metaphor about the body. And that is that the body of Christ has one head. And, 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 and I say that because I just want to make sure we understand exactly what we're talking about here. Because this can get misunderstood, underappreciated, maybe not thought of. Now, a lot of you are going to amen this because this is really exciting news. I am not the head of the church. Praise God for that, <laughs> all right? Do you, do you know what this place would... One, you'd be in orange pews, all right? In other words, if I were the head of the church, I mean, I'll just tell you right now, all this would look a lot different, okay? Uh, things, things would be cons- considerably different on a, on a lot of levels, all right? If I were the... But I'm, I'm not the head of the church, and... You're not the head of the church. The deacons are not the head of the church, to which all of them, I know, say amen. It's the last thing any of those men want. Sunday school teachers are not the head of the church. In other words, the the language here is critical because we understand that we are the body of Christ, which means He is the head, which means that under all under That the, all of this, this entire thing we talk about, we talk about the church, should be understood in light of our service to the lordship of Jesus Christ. That Jesus is the head of the church. That above and beyond everything else, you and I should view ourselves, not through the lens of what church does for me, or what kind of music I like, or what kind of preaching I like, or that, that we're understanding, you know, that this is some kind of show, or this is some kind of product More on that in just a minute, but instead we recognize the body of Christ, the gathering of the church, is gathering for ultimately one primary purpose, and that is for Christ to be obeyed and for Christ to be exalted, because Christ is the head of the church. So we're not the bosses. That doesn't mean there aren't leaders, and I recognize my role and the role of leadership in the life of the church, but we recognize we're all under-leaders, right? We're, we're all, as a pastor, in fact, one of the terms you may hear for a pastor is an under-shepherd. I'm not the head of the church. I'm not the chief shepherd of the church. That we all come into this body by one means, and that means by which we come into the body is Christ Himself, that Christ is the head. So, Paul then lays out then this imagery in verse 4 of the body. He uses a metaphor, it's an illustration, one we'd be familiar with. There are many members in the body, but all the members don't have the same function. That's pretty straightforward, right? In other words, you you look look at a human body. It's all kinds of parts that make the body operate. And each of these parts have their role to play. And if one of these parts doesn't play their role properly... What happens to the rest of your body? You have a bad time, right? In other words, life gets difficult if one or more parts of the body decide not to operate the way that they are supposed to. This is the language that Paul's using. Though we are all part of one body, we are many members. We, We are distinct. We are separate. We all have our role to play. Just like every part of your body has a role to play, yet we are also all working for the good of one body. Really, this illustration or analogy uh, takes on a bit more detail, like I said, when you get to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, because Paul then lays out the absurdity of what it would look like if the body were to decide to act the way, say, the church in Corinth was acting. Now, the church in Corinth had a real problem When it came to the spiritual gifts, they liked the really flashy gifts, the ones that got a lot of attention, like the speaking in tongues, the healing, the prophesying, the preaching, right? The flashy gifts, that's what everybody wanted. And Paul's language to them in chapter 12 is directed right at this attitude, to say, look, just because there are some who may be more in front, and just because there are some gifts that may translate more directly into the lives of more people doesn't mean that one part of the body is more important than another. All the parts are necessary. So Paul fleshes this out and he says, so if the entire body thought that, you know, if, that it wanted to be an eye, if you had all these other parts, if, if the ear decided, you know what? The ear, the ear just doesn't get the same kind of street cred that the eyes get. I mean, if you think about it, that's true. People walk up to you and they say, right? Oh, wow, what beautiful eyes. What color are your eyes? You get a little newborn baby, right, in your arms. That baby opens his or her eyes for the first time. And what is it that you think? Wow, what beautiful eyes. Has anybody ever walked up to you and said, you've got the most beautiful spleen I have ever seen. I am telling you. I just, it's incredible. I've never seen anything like it. No, no, people don't do that, right? That's not a thing. The eyes, the eyes, though, Paul lays out this illustration, says, what if the entire body was an eye? How are you going to hear anything? What if the entire body was an ear? How are you going to smell anything? This, this is what he lays out in that chapter. Paul, so Paul, Paul kind of draws out the absurdity of this. That there, there is in some way a part that's more important than another part because that part might be a little more prominent or a little more up front, but all parts are necessary. It would be like your big toe saying, you know what, I don't like being in socks, I don't like being in shoes... Uh, you know, the hand, the hand, boy, the hand gets all the credit. You don't walk up to somebody and say, hey, let me give you a good firm toe shake, right? You say, let me give you a good firm hand shake. I mean, hands are, they get all the good stuff. So the big toe wants to be a hand. In other words, that, 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 that would create chaos. And listen, we might think of, say, something like the big toe not being very significant, but you go home and break it and tell me how significant that toe is, Right? Has anybody ever broken their pinky toe? Anybody ever broken your pinky toe? Okay. It's miserable, right? It's miserable. Every part of your day, you are thinking about literally the smallest part outside of your I mean that your, the littlest part. Let one part go wrong. It influences all of it. I think this is all undergirding what Paul is saying here when he says, for as there are many members, there's all different kinds, but it's all one body. And all members don't have the same function. We recognize that all of us have a part to play. All of us have a role to play. All of us have significance when it comes to the body of Christ. And then he draws this out a little bit further in verse 5. So, we being many are one body in Christ and individually Members of one another. I find this one phrase to be quite instructive. I think this whole language here that Paul uses, where Paul is is giving us this right understanding of how we should view the church, this is such a corrective to what I think is a really bad view of the church that we're going to end up spending more time on it in two weeks. Because here's what's happened. And I I think we all bear some responsibility in this. We've made church something other than what it is biblically. What I mean by that is we've made church an institution. And I'm not saying it doesn't have some features of that. In essence, we've made the church almost like a business. We've made the church almost like a product. And so how then do we view it? Well, those in leadership are producers, and then those in the pew are consumers. And this is the way we often think about church life. About it being a product that we consume. And so when we think about church, what do we often think of? We often think about what we like or don't like. In fact, here's how it shows up. When folks who are a part of, say, the church, and when I say the church, I don't mean universally. I mean, let's say Tabernacle Baptist Church, when there is language that would be used that would say things like, well, I think the church ought to be fill in the blank. I think the church should fill in the blank. I think the church should provide or do or give or not do this. Here's what, I, here's what I'm afraid we don't do when we use that language. I'm afraid when we use that language, we don't recognize we as individuals are just as much responsible as anybody else we may have in mind. But I don't think we think of the church that way. Here's often how it might go. The church needs to provide this event or this program, meaning... The pastor or somebody on the staff or somebody else then needs to do this thing. But the Bible never uses that kind of language to talk about the church. The church is not a product. We are not consumers. The language of the body flies in the face of that mentality. The language of the body would suggest, no, we're all part of the same body, we all have a function and a role, we're all significant, we're all important, we're all necessary, and what happens to all of us happens to each of us. All of us should be understood as each of us, one body but individuals and then members of one another. And so let me ask you, church, would it make a difference if we viewed ourselves through this kind of lens? If we recognize when we walk through the door, God places just as much expectation that you would serve someone else today as you would be served. Do we think that? Do we think that when we come together? Do we think about... I'm a a member of one another. There's an obligation I have, you have. I mean, not just me as a pastor, I mean as just a member of the body of Christ. An obligation that I would then render service unto another before I think about the service that's being rendered unto me. Now listen, before it sounds like I'm just picking on church people, I'm not. I'm going to give you a little insight into my kind. Who's my kind? Preacher kind, right? Because we're, we're a whole different species of people sometimes, all right? I, I tell you to ask my wife, but she, she wouldn't say. But she would agree, all right? In her mind, she agrees. She understands. My family understands, yes. Preachers are of a different kind, and it's easy for us to stand up here and to say, right? And I just said say, but I'm pointing, but you know what I mean, right? In other words, we, you know, we get all preachy. It's our job, right? You people straighten up. But here's what pastors can often do. You people sh- should. All right, but here's, here's what, what preachers often do. You become a means to my end. Happens. Oh, but see, we can put all the religious spiritual garb on it, because, right, we've got seminary training, and so, you know, we can make it sound like Jesus stuff and Bible stuff, but really what are we doing sometimes? If I get more of you in the seat, maybe I get asked to be on some kind of national board. If I get more of you in the seat, maybe I will then be asked to speak at conferences. If I get more of you in the seat, then maybe, maybe I'll make a name for myself. Maybe I'll be somebody. Maybe then I'll be recognized. Listen, it's it's just as easy for me to treat you as a product as it might be for folks in the pew to treat the church as a product. But Paul's metaphor shatters all of that. (laughs) shatters all of that. I I recognize that we all have our roles and that my role is for your benefit and on your behalf and is to be unto you. And that I hope and pray that all of us then would view ourselves that way. I I almost considered getting one of our northern transplants up here. You all know who you are out there, right? (laughs) To to quote JFK, because I can't do the accent, all right? But it would fit, right? Ask not what your country can do for you, right? So, I mean, I do. I really want to get Jim Thompson up here to do it. All right, but I won't. I won't make him do it. Ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. And if you're offended or worried that I quoted JFK, well, then just stop it and stop listening to the news for some amount of time and stop making everything political, all right, because I'm not doing that. I just mean that the statement, I think, renders an effective image But that's what we do. What's the church going to do? What are they going to feed me? What are they going to give me? Am I going to feel like somebody? Am I going to feel like my needs are met when I walk through the door? And I'm not saying that there aren't needs that you have that shouldn't be met. I'm just saying if that's all that I think about, if that's all that you think about, then you've missed what the Bible says about the church. Because I should be just as concerned, you should be just as concerned as meeting the needs of people sitting around you as having your own needs met. I didn't make up the language. We're all members of one another. Under the headship of Christ, members of one another. Now what we'll see in a couple of weeks, this really though is the best way to live out our faith, It's the best way to view ourselves because then we can really begin to see the nature of our significance, our role, our function in the greater work of the body of Christ as we talk about spiritual gifts. Because after talking about God's grace and God's people, he's then going to talk about God's gifts to us. Before we even get there, perhaps we should just just take, take a minute now and then think, how do I view my relationship to God's people? Do I understand what it means that the measure of faith that's been dealt to me, this grace of God that's been given to me, has knit me together with other people? I've got a function and a role, and that I'm not just a member of this nebulous thing called the church. That means I am intimately, spiritually tied to every other person person who claims to be a part of this body? Is that how I view my relationship to the church? Do I view myself through this lens? And do I believe this, that my most important service to my King, to Christ, to the head, is going to come in the context of the church? It's going to come in the context of one another? Do I view even my service that way? So this, this morning, we'll have a time, we'll, we're, we'll have a time of response, we'll sing, and I'll be right down front. And perhaps in hearing this, you, you think about your own view of church and you'd say, you know what? No, I've got to be honest, Pastor, I've viewed myself as a consumer, and you and everybody up there, they're the product. And no, that's kind of how I thought the church is here to serve my needs. Perhaps that then would just be your own response to the Lord. If you'd like me to pray with you, if you'd like to come down here and pray, you're welcome to do that. To be fully devoted to Christ is to understand who I am in relation to His church. Are you engaged as a useful member of the body of Christ? Of course, I'd also make an appeal. Anybody here who does not know Christ as Savior, you're not a part of the body of Christ. In other words, if there are people here who have never confessed that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, if there are people here who have never submitted to the gospel, if there are people here who have never placed their faith in Christ and Christ alone for salvation, you are not a part of the, mem- of the body of Christ. You are not a member. Christ is not your head. Instead, that king will be your judge. And the Bible has some very difficult things to say for those who are not in Christ which includes then being cast eternally from the presence of God. So I would implore anybody here who does not know Christ that that is where you would begin today. you, You would trust Christ and Christ alone for your salvation. If you'd like to know more about that, again, I'll be right down front. We'd love to talk with you more. Let's stand together and I'll pray. And after I pray, then we will sing together. Father God, we do thank you for gathering your people. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the ways in which you have dealt out faith and grace to us. We thank you for making this body of Christ and for giving us a part in it. Now, Father, I pray that we would live faithfully, uh, that we would live obediently. I pray, God, that we would then understand ourselves through these lenses of grace and, and the people that you have formed together, that we might then live out our faith and obedience to you. Father, I pray that you would then bring your word to bear on our hearts and minds, using it to continue to form and fashion us into the image of Christ. That's in his name we pray. Amen.